Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. In our third season, we'll explore investing in a post-pandemic world. After a year and a half of COVID-19 dominating nearly every investment conversation, vaccine rollouts are now well underway and the global economy is recovering at a much faster pace than following past recessions. But as we emerge from the pandemic bunker, the financial landscape looks very different from when we went in. In this season, we take a wide-angle lens to the investment environment to discuss economic trends and long-term themes in markets and how COVID-19 has shaped them. Over the course of a dozen episodes, we'll speak with experts on a variety of topics in an attempt to provide some insight on investing for a post-pandemic world. This has been a very tough two years for the nation's universities, as lockdowns, remote learning and strict COVID protocols have severely impacted the college experience, particularly for those who started college during the pandemic. Nevertheless, colleges are gradually getting back to normal, and the data continue to show the value of a college education in raising lifetime earnings. So to talk about the importance of saving for college and how to get invested, I'm very glad to be joined today by Mike Conrath. Mike is Head of Education Savings at J.P. Morgan, and leads the team that creates our College Planning Essentials publication. So Mike, welcome to Insights Now. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Kelly. Real excited to be here today. To start with, uh, college during the pandemic has certainly been a very different experience for students. Um, The shift to online classes and social distancing measures have really taken away many of the social activities that helped define the college experience, at least temporarily. Can you tell us a little bit about how the pandemic has affected college campuses? Sure. Well, well, for starters, I mean, the biggest and most obvious effect was we saw campuses locking down. And what that meant for most of us was we saw the switch from virtual learning or to virtual learning from the campus lecture hall. And that lecture hall, pretty much for many folks, being replaced by mom and dad's basements. So one interesting trend that we've seen, though, the past year out of that is enrollment is actually down across the board. And candidly, enrollment has been trending down somewhat for colleges over the past few years, but this year we saw roughly a 15% dip in enrollment. So what that means is obviously fewer kids on campus, but it also means fewer tuition dollars. And what that translates to from the college perspective, if you think of a college as a business with fewer students on campus, fewer tuition dollars, that means that they're starting to feel a pretty significant pinch from a revenue perspective. And if you think about other revenue sources outside of tuition, whether it's sports, fundraising, government support, alumni contributions, all of those revenue sources saw dips across the board. So, you know, looking at the future or thinking about this going forward, what that means that I think it really leaves colleges with two choices to overcome those revenue shortfalls. One is they can raise costs, certainly, or two, they can over-enroll students to make up for the revenue hit. So if you think about it, neither one of those are really positive outcomes. So I would just kind of sum up by saying, you know, while the experience, and you mentioned the experience, while that experience certainly has changed, the need to have a plan for the experience really has not changed. And in fact, it becomes that much more underscored, the importance of it. And of course, uh, you know, I mean, that's looking at it from the, from the financial perspective of the colleges, but some students and parents might also argue that the college experience that they've had is not what they paid for. So what exactly is it that they're paying for? And what are the benefits of a college education? Well, I'll share with you as a parent, myself with three kids and my oldest, who's my son, he's a junior in high school right now. So 
the college experience, you know, whatever that looks like is starting to feel more and more real. It's getting closer on the horizon. So I can appreciate that question. But, you know, when I look at it through the eyes of a parent, I mean, first of all, there is that experience. Um, but outside of that, there's also a monetary benefit to that. So, you know, there are a number of studies that look at the benefits of college education over the long term. And I know your team has done that as well. But, you know, there are a number of studies that point to someone with a four-year degree relative to a high school graduate earning $1 million more over their lifetime. And that, and again, that's looking over the long term, but we also see benefits over the short term. So if you look at just the age 25 to 29 cohort, you know, what we found is the annual income for that younger age band for a, a college grad versus a high school grad is 73% higher which is pretty significant, especially given we're looking at a very young age cohort. And over the past five years, in terms of trends, we've seen incomes for high school grads go up roughly 2%, whereas those with a bachelor's degree, income has gone up 15%. So clearly college does pay. Well, okay, I'll, I'll give you that. But of course, college tuition costs have gone up a lot over the years also. So is college education worth it when you take into account these huge costs? Yeah, that's actually a great question. And I mean, the short answer is yes. However, it's also, it depends. And what I mean by that is, I think it's important to look at this really through an investment lens. So, you know, ask yourself, what is my ROI? What's my return on my investment? And this is where, you know, to the extent you can <laughs> solve for these answers, it's okay, when my child graduates, you know, well, first of all, what are they looking to major in? What's their specialization? And when they graduate, what could be the potential starting salaries based on that major, based on that career choice, what role they choose? Um, and this is where you can get into looking at public versus private. So, so for example, if I'm looking at maybe a profession, and I won't call out anything that specifically, but a profession that is on the lower end of the pay scale, relatively speaking, then does it pay in terms of ROI to send my child to a private school, or maybe I can get a larger ROI if I go public. And again, these also are very subjective and personal choices as well, but you can't ignore the ROI component. And you, know, you also have to think about, will you be forced to borrow? And right now, there is, on a, there is roughly $1.4 trillion in outstanding student loan debt. And that number has continued to climb over the years so the other way to think about it is, okay, will I have to borrow? How much will I have to borrow? And if I do have to borrow, and that, that's fine for many folks, but will I have a job that actually allows me to pay it off while also maintaining some level of comfort in my lifestyle? Will I be still living in mom and dad's basement, becoming that, you know, that helicopter uh, student returning back to the nest? So you know, at the end of the day, it's an investment and the numbers really do matter both before and after college. So it's probably the case it's best to, to plan ahead rather than have to pay back over the course of your life for, uh, for all of these costs. But that, I guess, brings me to my next question, which is, are families now equipped to pay for this? I and mean, what are some of the recent trends we're seeing in people saving for college? Sure. Well, well the short answer is no. They're generally not equipped. And I say that if you just look at the average 529 plan balance on a national basis, the average balance is about $25,000. And if you 
think of that relative to college costs, that, that would cover today roughly one year total costs at a public university, considering in-state tuition prices. Um, that number is actually even more challenging, obviously, if you look at a private college. And right now, $80,000 has become the new norm for a lot of the more competitive private colleges and universities. And that's just for one year. And, and again, those are co costs in terms of today's dollars, not factoring in tuition inflation going forward. Um, that said, the good news, and there is good news here, is that during this pandemic, families actually did not curb their 529 contributions whatsoever. In fact, we actually saw an uptick in 529 plan contributions and balances, which were helped by markets, but contributions were a contributing factor to families being able to save and invest even more. So I think one takeaway is that, you know, whatever's happening with regards to current events, whether it's the pandemic or something else going on, could be markets, politics, you name it. At the end of the day, the need to save for our kids and our grandkids education really doesn't go away. And again, that underscores the importance of having a plan. And, you know, just very quickly, I'm often asked, what does that mean to have a plan? Well, it can mean a lot of things, but quite simply, for starters, your foundational plan should include an understanding of the costs, also understanding the realities of financial aid, and at the end of the day, what are you going to do with that information? How are you going to get invested? I guess it is a rather unique investment. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about some of the impediments to building this, this, this college fund in terms of taxes, inflation, uh, obviously what markets can, can do to you, what the high tuition costs can do to you, but also you know, when you're, when you're betting on how much financial aid you can get. I mean, it's, it is an unusual investment. No, it certainly is. And those are all certainly hurdles that we all have to consider. But what I've seen, Dr. Kelly, is that there's really two primary pitfalls that I've seen family, that have caused families to fall short in their college funding. No, number one is they have unrealistic aid expectations. And I could talk more about that. And two, simply they don't invest. They might save, but they don't invest. So just to kind of tackle those one by one, the financial aid predicament that a lot of us are in. So there's this concept that I refer to as the myth of the free ride. And again, I'm going to put on my hat as a parent here or look through my glasses as a parent. And, you know, at one point as parents, Many, if not all of us, have thought that we're raising the next star athlete, the next concert pianist, or the next budding scholar, right? We've all had our stars in our eyes about our kids, which is fantastic because they're all bright and talented and unique in their own ways. But you can't let that get in the way of your ability to save and invest. And, and, and here's why. If you look at the percentage of students this past year that received a free ride, meaning enough scholarship or grant money to fully cover the costs. Again, being one of those parents myself that thought my kid was the brightest and most talented, if you were to put a figure to that, it's 0.3%. So put another way, three out of 1,000 students receive a free ride every year. And by the way, that figure has been constant. So you know, over the summer, I took my son to a few baseball tournaments and we were up in Cooperstown, which is fantastic, by the way. But if there's a thousand kids running around at this tournament. That means three of them are probably talented enough to get a free ride. And I'm just using that as an example. But here's what many of us see and read as parents or grandparents. We see that or even hear about folks getting scholarship and grant money. And that is the case. So I don't want to um, paint the wrong picture here. 
if you look at grants, think of grant as being need-based. So you have to demonstrate some level of financial need. 48% of students or families did receive a grant this past year. But again, there are income qualifications, asset level qualifications in order to be eligible for those grants. Putting grants aside for a second, if you look at scholarships, so think of that as being merit-based, special talents, academics, sports, so on and so forth. 58% of students did receive a scholarship. So, you know, as a dad, I really like those odds. That's better than, you know, a coin flip. Uh, so I, I like those stats, but if you actually drill down to the dollars and cents of it, it tells a different story. So while 58% of students did receive a scholarship, the average dollar amount was about $7,900. Now, look, if a college handed me a check or took $7,900 off my tuition bill, I'd say, great, that's money that I don't have to pay out of pocket. But thinking of it relative to the total cost, if I'm looking at an $80,000 plus year school, that's less than 10% of the costs that are covered. So in other words, I'm going to have to dip into my pocket or some other account or hopefully not borrow in order to make up that tremendous gap. And you know, one last thing I'll share on that is, and I, I think the theme that we're getting at is families do overestimate financial aid. And this past year, we saw families actually pay 15% more out of pocket, meaning they've had to pay out of current income or some other account than they expected to. So clearly expectations do not align with what that financial uh, aid award or scholarship amount might be. And thinking about this over time, has the, you know, when you talk about grants or scholarships, has that financial aid risen in line with tuition costs or has it been better or has it been slower to rise? It actually has not risen commensurately. You know, costs have gone up 800% over the past three and a half decades. The amount of aid awarded per student has gone down. And even if you look at federal loan programs, they have actually have been fairly static in terms of the dollar amount. So that gap continues to widen, which again, underscores the need to save, but also invest. And I mentioned that was one of the other pitfalls that families um, fall victim to is they might save, but they don't invest. And what I mean by that, if you look at families who are actually saving currently for college, the most popular savings vehicle, I wish I could say it's a 529 plan, it's not, it's actually cash. So 49% of college savers are sitting in cash, meaning they have college dollars earmarked in a checking account, a savings account, or a certificate deposit. And you know, I think we know those accounts are paying next to zero and 0% 0 compounded annually over 18 years is still zero. So you need to be invested for that money to grow. Um, there's a lot of talk during the 2020 elections of free college or abolishing all student loan debt. You think this is actually gonna happen going forward? <laughs> I get that question all the time from friends, family, and, and clients for that matter. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of unknowns there and you, you have to be careful about that. You know, One unknown is where exactly will the money come from? How will, how will the concept of free college be funded? And if it does actually come to fruition, what will it look like? And what I mean by that is, what strings, if any, will be attached to that? Will there be income limits? Will there be do dollar limits? Will it be restricted to specific types of colleges? For example, community colleges versus four-year. Um, you know, there's a lot of unknowns there. And <laughs> I think like anything, 
you know, while it's it's okay to hope for these things, you can't use hope as your planning strategy. And again, when my son was born 16 years ago, even I kind of threw my up, arms up in the air and said, my gosh, this can't continue there. It has to give or it has to come down. Something's got to give. And unfortunately, not much has changed since then over these 16 plus years in terms of costs and aid. And in fact, I would argue that it's gotten worse. You know, thankfully, I was able to start early and stick to monthly contributions, which which helps. But again, underscores, you need to have a plan that you can control and don't leave it to to someone else. So so if the, if the plan is not to rely on a free ride from Uncle Sam or from the colleges, uh, and you do actually have to have a realistic plan, uh, what's the most efficient way of accumulating savings for college? Sure. Well, 529 plans really have become one of the premier ways to not just save and invest. And that is due to the unique nature of the 529 itself. It was specifically designed to fund education costs. And quite simply, one way to think about it is it's a tax-free vehicle when used for education costs. So that could include your college tuition, your fees, your room and board costs, your book supplies, your iPad. Your money grows tax-deferred inside the 529 plan account. And come time to pay those big costs and expenses that I mentioned, all of your contributions plus your earnings come out tax-free to you at the federal, state, and local level. So again, for qualified education expenses, it's a tax-free investment vehicle. And again, it's earmarked for education, so it forces you to keep those dollars separate from your other accounts. And that's you know one other pitfall we see is families will commingle their quote-unquote college fund with their retirement assets or their general day-to-day savings or emergency fund. And, and that could be tricky from a planning perspective, but you know it's important to, to get started and a 529 plan can really be a great way. And, it, and it's not just for parents. And you know we, we hear the, the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. It also takes a village to fund education for that child. And the great thing is 529 plans are accessible by lots of folks. And we even see grandparents using 529 plans, taking advantage of gifting and estate planning benefits as well, while still affording them control in addition to those tax-free income benefits that we spoke about. So there are a lot of ways of using this as part of an overall financial plan and reusing it to reduce tax exposure and uh, and with estate planning also. Um, one last question. I, you know, I, Obviously, paying for college is not easy. And a lot of people feel that um, that because it's so expensive, the 529 plans really only make sense for the most well-off. Are these plans actually built for different income levels and different levels of paying or commitment to actually paying for college? Yes. And the short answer is yes. 529 plans really were designed for folks from all walks of life, from both ends and in between on, on the wealth spectrum as well. And, and that's the, the beauty of them. They really are accessible to anyone and everyone. And I think you bring up actually a good point that where you, you know, some a point that came to mind during your question, Dr. Kelly, is I think one of the myths that families have is to get started, you need to have a large lump sum already accumulated. And that is not the case. In fact, 529 plans have a very low entry point. Uh, many plans let you start with $25 a month just to get started. And that can be, you know, a forced monthly savings. And of course, you have the ability to change the level of your contributions over time or make lump sums throughout the year for birthdays, holidays, graduations, so on and so forth. 
So there is a low hurdle rate to get started, you know, $25 a month in, in a lot of cases. Um, but also on the other side of the wealth spectrum, you know, there's also this myth that wealthier individuals have that, you know what, I, I don't need a 529. I can write the check or I could just pay it out of some other taxable investment account I have and not a bad problem to have. <laughs> However, it comes down to efficiency, tax efficiency, and at the end of the day, more dollars. So for example, if you had a $10,000 lump sum investment and you started with 10, 10 grand, you put $500 a month away every month until that child was 18 years old, never put another lump sum in by the way, in a taxable account versus a tax-free 520 account, assuming all the things being equal, and I'm just going to assume a straight line 6% rate of return, you would actually have $48,000 more in this hypothetical investment over the 18-year time period. 48 grand can cover two years at a public university. So it's not just getting invested, it's how you're invested. And by not investing in something like a 529, you literally could be leaving money on the table that is otherwise lost to taxes. So again, the numbers matter, how you get invested matters, but it's important, most important to get started. So, so bottom line is college is absolutely worth it, but you have to have a plan to pay for it. And, uh, and you have to think about how to do this in the most financially efficient, tax efficient way. Um, well, listen, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mike. And thank you all for listening. Yeah, thank you. Please tune in to our next episode when I'll be joined by Jack Manley, Global Market Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, for a discussion on our team's investment outlook for 2022. Until then, I invite you to download the J.P. Morgan Insights app for iPhone and iPad, which is another way to access this podcast and all of our timely insights on the markets and the economy at your fingertips. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass.